This sermon, and then every sermon in this series, is going to be uh, R-rated. So for those of you who are parents uh, that have uh, small children in the room, it may be something that you feel like you would want to take them out of the room, move them into our children's program. That's fine if you do. It's fine if you don't. I'm going to give you a few minutes before you get there. In fact, I want to just call your attention to one other thing that's in the program. We have a, an outreach that's coming up. It's a Halloween outreach. It'll be Saturday, October the 28th. And this green uh, flyer that's in your program, we could use lots of volunteers. And if you would, please just uh, check uh, one of the you know, places on here that says you'd like to volunteer and how and where. And uh, we will contact you immediately and drop that in the offering uh, buckets later on when we take an offering. I want to thank Ben Stewart for the last couple of weeks for speaking. I think Ben did a, a fantastic job. Uh, and I think uh, many of you uh, have spoken about what a great job he did. And we are very grateful. Well, this morning we begin a new series that's going to take us through the better part of September and October. And it's called The Sex God. And right out of the gate, I want to make a few promises to you about this series. First, I promise to you that I'm not doing this series to be cute for shock value, or to grow our church numerically. I'm doing this series because human beings are sexual, just as we are intellectual, spiritual, and emotional, and we need to know what God has to say about sex. Second, I want to promise to you that I won't be crude or obscene for the sake of being crude or obscene. But there will probably be things in this series that may feel crude or obscene to some of you, Some of the things that we have to talk about in this series for the good of people in this church. Third, I promise to you that every person who hears this series will find things to be offended by if you're looking for things to be offended by, including me. And then finally, I promise you that this series is not about creating guilt and shame for anyone. Listen to me. Creating guilt and shame and manipulating people out of guilt and shame have absolutely nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I won't be a part of that. I think those of you who are regulars here know that. What I want to do in this series is give you a vision for something beautiful that you can aspire to. Okay? Now, those are the promises that I make to you. I want, to make, I want you to make some promises to me. Here's the first one. I want to promise you that you won't send me emails that say my son or my daughter was too young to hear about sex in church. Two things. First, every week you'll have the opportunity. I'll tell you. I'll give you a warning. You'll have the opportunity to take your kids and put them in the children's program. That's number one. But second, I hate to tell you, but by about third or fourth grade, your kids have already heard most of what I'm talking about in this series. Okay, second promise I want to ask you for is that you would give me a great deal of grace and latitude. Maybe even have a sense of humor, okay? It's hard to talk about sex in a culture that is crude and obscene without having to talk about some things that are really uncomfortable to talk about, even for me, okay? Third, I want you to promise me that instead of looking for things to be offended by, you will keep an open enough mind to consider an alternate viewpoint. Open enough. That's, that's all I'm asking for. Just open enough to consider and to use your mind to think critically. Okay? And then finally, I want you to promise me that you will not walk out of this room feeling guilt and shame. Instead, if you do feel guilt for something, if you do feel shame for something, leave them at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ where he paid for your guilt and bore your shame. Okay? Can you make those promises to me? I make promises to you. Can you make those promises to me? 
Yeah, good. Okay, very good. <clears throat> if you would, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 as we start this series. Genesis chapter 1. It's the first book in the Bible. Do you have a Bible of some kind? If you're a regular here, do you have a Bible? Did you bring a Bible? Digital? Hardback? Remember, I threatened you a few weeks ago that if you don't start bringing your Bibles, I'm going to go all Joel Osteen on you, and I'm going to make you hold your Bibles up, and I'm going to do things that will embarrass you. So, please, bring your Bibles. Here's the first point I want to make today as we start this series out. I think this is an important point. It's a point that few of you have ever heard in a church before, and it needs to be made. God is the author of sex, and he says that sex is very good. And that makes him the sex god. Because he's the author of sex. Let's start with the very first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, for the next 24 verses, the author of the book of Genesis describes each of God's creative acts. Now, I realize there are many schools of thought about this chapter in the Bible and what it represents and how much time it represents. Believe me when I tell you, I am very familiar with this. But don't get caught up in that. Whether God created the universe in seven days or whether those days are supposed to, be, supposed to represent longer periods of time or whether this is intended as a song or as a poem, I don't want you to get caught up in that today. What I want you to see is that there is a phrase that is repeated over and over and over in these verses as each act of creation is completed. Look at verse 10, for instance. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. That phrase, and God saw that it was good, is what I want you to see because it's repeated over and over and over in chapter 1. It happens in, verses, in verse 10, it happens in verse 12, it happens in verse 18, it happens in verse 21, and it happens in verse 25. God makes something and he says, it is good. Sort of like he creates it and then he says, good on me. Good thing. Until he makes human beings. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now wait just a second. Did you notice when he says, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. What's he referring to? How exactly are they going to be fruitful and increase in number? Hit it, guys. talking about sex here. That's what he's talking about. That's how they're going to be fruitful in number. That's how that's going to happen. Now, skip down to verse 31. After he's created humans and introduced the idea of sex, the text says that God saw all that he had made and it was, now what would you think he's going to say? Based on what he's done before, what would you think he's going to say? That it's good, right? It's not what he says. Watch this. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, are you tracking with me? You see this? God says that sex is very good. I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. God says that sex is very good. 
Those of you who heard so many talks from your church or your parents that said, don't have sex, you heard it so much that you can't even have sex in your marriage without feeling bad about it, without feeling dirty, without feeling like you're doing something wrong. I want you to let this sink in, that God says that sex is very good. And so if you have faith in Christ, and if you believe the Bible is truth, faith won't allow married couples to lie in bed and to say to themselves, what we're doing is dirty or wrong. Instead, faith says, God created this act, and it is very good, and it is for those who know and believe the truth. Or for those of you who've grown up, maybe thinking that Christianity is anti-sex, and out of touch, and too genteel to talk about sex, maybe even too genteel and to enjoy sex. Let this sink in, that God made sex, and he says that sex is very good. Perhaps the church you grew up in didn't make that clear, or maybe, maybe you've come to that impression about Christianity through what you've seen in the media. Maybe, maybe just maybe, The representation that you have seen about Christianity as it relates to sex in the media is distorted and misleading. Maybe, just maybe. Christianity is pro-sex because God is pro-sex. He is the sex God. He is the author of sex. For those of you who in your past may have misused sex in some way and you feel so guilty about it, That every time you have sex in your marriage, you're reminded of that. You can't enjoy it at all. Or maybe you just, maybe you still feel so guilty or shameful that it's not enjoyable. I want you to see that God says that sex in marriage is very good. Sure, it can be misused. Sure, it can be distorted. Sure, it can be perverted. Just like money and power can be. But sex itself is very good, God says. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but that all of the things that are wrong, like sin, all, all sin, all sin is just a misuse or a perversion or a distortion of something that's good. Did you know that? See, evil can't exist without good. Good can exist without evil, but evil can't exist without good. Sex, God says, is very good. Evil, sure, perverts it, misuses it, distorts it. But that doesn't change the fact that God says sex itself is very good. Or those of you who are maybe in elementary school or middle school, high school, college, I want you to pay attention to this. God created sex. Not Hollywood, not hip-hop artists, not your school, not Pornhub. God is the author of sex. Sex isn't dirty. Sex isn't bad. In fact, God says sex is very good. He created Adam and Eve with complementary sex organs to be able to have sex with each other. I want to say this as clearly as I can, and I want you to see it clearly, that God is the author of sex, and he says it's very good to have it. Christianity is pro-sex because God is pro-sex. I want you to say that with me as a group, would you? Christianity is pro-sex because God is pro-sex. And I want to add this, that city church is pro-sex because God is pro-sex. So God's the author of sex, and he says it's very good. Now, I want to even go a step further than that. Here's my second point. God commands 
married couples to have sex. God commands married couples to have sex. Look again at verse 28. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, I want you to see something. Some passages in Scripture just sort of describe things. Some passages of Scripture uh, ask questions. And then there are some passages of Scripture that are commands from God that we are to follow. This one is a command for married couples to have sex because the earth isn't getting filled with people without women getting pregnant. And women aren't getting pregnant without having sex without having sex, except, of course, if you're the Virgin Mary, and none of you are. So this is a command from God for married couples to have sex. But I want to show you a place in the Bible that is stated even more clearly than that. And you can just stay where you are in the Bible, and I'm going to put the passage up on the screen for you. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in the New Testament. And the context of the passage is marriage and sex in marriage. And here's the way it reads. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. It's talking about sex. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body doesn't belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other. Now, what's God saying? Well, he's saying that couples are supposed to have sex in their marriage. It's part of your duty to one another to be having sex. It's part of your duty to God to be having sex. Now, look, I realize that there are some very terrible ways that a passage like that can and has been misused. And there are a variety of reasons that uh, husbands and wives might have problems in their marriage with sex. And so I'm not I'm not reading this verse in a calloused manner. And, and just because this verse has been misused and distorted and twisted, maybe used to make people feel guilty, it doesn't discount the good meaning behind this verse itself. I'm going to address later in the series some of the very real sexual dysfunctions that happen in marriage. But today, what I want you to see is that God is so pro-sex, he believes sex is so very good that he commands married couples to have it. And in fact, if we understand that what it means to worship God is more than just singing songs to him, but obeying his commands, then we can say that sex for a married couple can be an act of worship. When our kids were very young, my wife and I would sometimes, well, sometimes we just have to go back into our bedroom and close and, and lock the door because you can't always wait until they're in bed or until the grandparents babysit the kids. Are you with me on this? You know what I'm saying? Okay. Now, you know, a, a, a closed locked door is a magnet to little kids. And they would stand outside and they would knock on the door and they'd holler, why can't I come in? What are you doing? And I would holler, we're worshiping. That's what we're doing. One day, one of my sons said to me, Dad, you and Mom worship a lot. And I said, yes, we do, son. Yes, we do. Now, look, I, the thing I want you to see is that I want you to understand. I want to help you see that sex is very good because God created it. He declared it very good, and he commands married people to have it. It's not dirty. It's not bad. It's not shameful. Okay? But I'm even going to go another step further here. God gave us sex for our enjoyment. 
God gave us sex for our enjoyment. Some of you. Uh, I find this to be true, especially with women. Some of you have been taught somewhere that sex is not to be enjoyed. That it's only for the purpose of procreation. And I'm sorry that you were taught that. Because that just is not the case. I don't know if you know it. But there's a whole book in the Bible that is, it's a beautiful and very erotic description of the pleasure of sex between a young man and his bride. It's called, the book is called the Song of Solomon. Sometimes it's referred to as the Song of Songs. And there's not anything directly spiritual in the book. There's not any liturgies there. There's not, there's no commandments. There's no hymns. There's no prophecies. Nothing like that in that book. It's just about the beauty and the pleasure of sex between a young groom and his wife. In fact, here's what the man who was widely regarded as the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century said about this book. His name was Karl Barth. Here's what he said about the Song of Solomon, sometimes called the Song of Songs. He said its tone is eros without shame. Eros without shame. Eros, for those of you who don't know, is the word, it's the Greek word from which we get the word erotic. This is a book about romantic, passionate, sexual love. And it describes in poetic language the beauty of, of new love and, and all of the different phases of it. From meeting each other and dating all the way to the wedding and then to the wedding night. And even, even some of the difficulties that new married couples can have as they learn how to please one another sexually. I want you to listen to this passage. And I want you to just remember, actually, I'm going to put it up on the screen in just a moment for you to read. But I want you to remember that it's describing, it's describing the wedding night, and it's using Hebrew poetry. So we have to interpret a little bit about what it's talking about. Here's the young woman speaking. She says, my lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I don't know if you can believe, believe it or not, but that's in the Bible. And I don't, I don't know if you understand what she's referring to, but most commentaries interpret this as an extended metaphor that describes what many couples here can probably relate to. It's about a young man who finishes prematurely the act of sex. Now, that's very real, isn't it? Yeah. I want you to listen to this, to this passage. It's, it's the guy telling his wife how beautiful she is during foreplay. I want you to listen to this. He says, how beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hand. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of weed encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. <laughs> I will take hold of its fruit. You can laugh if you want to laugh. That's kind of funny. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples in your mouth, like the best wine. Did you know that's in the Bible? Did your church teach you that that's in the Bible? Did your parents, did they show you that? Because it's there right after the book of Ecclesiastes and right before Isaiah. 
Sex isn't just about procreation. God gave us sex for our enjoyment too. And I want you to, here's just a little sex 101. Guys, I want you to listen to this. Sex isn't just to be enjoyable for men and just endured by women. Did you know, guys, that only the woman was given a part of her body that is for nothing more than sexual enjoyment. Nothing more than sexual enjoyment. Men, we weren't given that. Only women. And guys, if you don't know what that part of the body is, come up and talk to me after the service and we'll talk about that, okay? And don't be embarrassed if you need to talk about that. God made sex to be extremely enjoyable for both men and women. But men, it won't be enjoyable for your wives if you aren't gracious enough to put her first, even in sex. And if you're not caring enough to take the time to learn the skill of making sex enjoyable for her. I find that a lot of men, a lot of young men in particular, don't understand this largely because of what they've seen on TV or in movies or in pornography. But I want to tell you what you've seen on TV and movies and pornography, none of that is real life and none of that is how sex really works. In general, and please don't call me sexist or something for saying this, but in general, for a woman to enjoy sex, it takes longer than for most guys. Most guys, particularly younger men, it doesn't take long. It starts and then the next thing the wife knows, he's asleep. But that isn't how it works, generally speaking, with women. It usually takes more time, more kissing, more non-sexual time, more emotional connection to bring her to a place that she can enjoy sex as much as you can. And so it requires graciousness and patience, men, and skill and communication. Listen again to this young groom speak to his bride. Listen to, listen to all of the things that he says to her. And compare it to what you hear, like about women in, oh, I don't know, say some hip-hop songs. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O oh prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. He's talking to her. This is foreplay. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. He goes on, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine. The fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Do you see what he's doing, men? You see what he's doing? He's taking time and he's affirming her and he's communicating to her and he's telling her how much he loves her and how beautiful that he finds her. And so guys, it requires graciousness and patience and skill and communication in order for your wife to be able to enjoy sex as much as you enjoy sex. It's not just to be endured. God gave us sex for our pleasure. Let me say, let me just summarize what I've said here uh, so far. So far, I've just, I've said this. Sex is very good because the God who created sex is very good. And God is glorified greatly when we receive the gift of sex with thanksgiving and enjoy it the way that he meant for sex to be enjoyed. All right? That's what we've, that's what we've said so far. Now, I have one last point. And if I've already blown all of your categories, I promise you I'm going to blow your categories with this point. Here it is. 
Sexuality is designed by God as a way to know Christ more fully. Sexuality is designed by God as a way to know Christ more fully. Wait a minute. Seriously? Some of you are probably asking. Yes, seriously. I want you to skip over to chapter 2 in the book of Genesis. And I want you to look at verse 24. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And let me just sort of uh, summarize and sort of conflate everything that's happened up until that point in Genesis 2. God has, in essence, introduced Adam to Eve, okay? This is the first woman that he's ever seen. All he's seen is animals before. Now he sees a woman. And God says to him, this is is God's command to, to, to them and to us. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father. In other words, he, he points, he, he introduces Adam to this woman that he's never seen before. And he says, Adam, for that reason, you're going to be willing to leave your father and your mother. And Adam's like, I am with you. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united. Underline that word, circle that word, highlight that word united. They will be united to his wife. And they will become, I want you to underline, circle, or highlight the word, one. They will become one flesh. United and one. I'm going to have more to say about this in the weeks to come. But the fact that God refers to sexual intercourse as two people. Some people are wondering, well, why doesn't he he just say that that they're going to have sexual intercourse? Well, you'll see. The fact that God refers to sexual intercourse as two people becoming united And one flesh is no coincidence. It's supposed to point us to Christ. Let me show you how. One of the purposes of Christ's death on the cross was to create harmony across the races for those who believe in him. People of different races would be able to dwell in the church in harmony as a result of believing in him. And really, the only two races that have really ever existed throughout history, I mean, I know we talk about a lot of different races, but as far as the Bible is concerned, the only two races that have ever existed throughout history are Jews and Gentiles. And at that time, and and also throughout much of history, Jews and Gentiles have hated each other. On the cross, Jesus, a Jewish man, died not only for the Jewish people, but also for Gentiles. And I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it. And I want you to see if anything sounds familiar. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. For he himself is our racial peace. That's what he's talking about. Who has made the two, what's the word? One. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Does that remind you of anything? Two become one. Sex between a husband and a wife was to point us to the way in which Christ would be able to bring believing people from all of the races of the world together and make them into one. In the way that no amount of education or laws or governmental policies or social media guilt has ever been able to accomplish. Only the cross could do that. Could bring a husband and a wife together to make them one. And Jews and Gentiles to bring them together and make them one within the body of Jesus Christ. Only the cross could do that. That's one way that sex is to point us to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
But there's something else that happened on the cross that sex and marriage is to point us to. The Apostle Paul uh, is writing now about Christ's death on the cross and the significance of it for those who believe. And here's what he says. If we have been, what's the word? What's the word? If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be, what's the word? With him in his resurrection. Just like a husband and a wife are united in the act of sex, so believers in Christ become united to Christ through his death on the cross. Now let me ask you something. How many of you have heard that passage in Genesis 2 before about a man and a woman coming together, being united, and becoming one flesh? Raise your hand if you've heard that verse before somewhere. Okay, now, let me ask you. How many of you have ever heard that verse taught in such a way that it shows how it was to point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. Let's see. The theme of the gospel runs all the way from the beginning of the Bible through the end of the Bible, folks. Sex was intended to point us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you don't remember anything else that I've said today, remember this. That God created sex and he created sexual passion and sexual ecstasy. So that when Christ came into the world, remember, remember Genesis happens long before Christ comes into the world. God had all of this planned. He created sex and sexual passion and sexual ecstasy so that when Christ came into the world, there would be all of these powerful images and powerful feelings to describe the promises and the pleasures of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And in the weeks to come, we're going to unpack that more and more. But I just want you to understand that the act of sex, the images, the, the, the pleasure, the enjoyment, the ecstasy, all was designed to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ and to help you know him more fully. Here's something you could do today in response to this message. Just give thanks to God for the beautiful gift of sexuality And how he designed it to make Jesus Christ more knowable. I mean, what other way could God have done it so that you would know internally what it feels like? The pleasure, the ecstasy of knowing Jesus Christ. What other way could he do it than through sex? And eternity will be that pleasure extended forever. Yeah? Give thanks. Give thanks to God for his creation of this beautiful thing called sex. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Lord, we do give thanks this morning for the gift of sex. Thank you so much for the fact that you created this, Lord, and and you created it and you called it very good and you created it Uh, You commanded it for married couples and you created it for our enjoyment and to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the gospel. Lord, we confess that uh, many of us in the room have uh, misused sex. We've distorted it. We've perverted it in some way. And Lord, 
Uh, we bring that now to the cross. Lord, I pray that the people here that might feel those things would bring whatever guilt, whatever shame that they bring to, or that they feel, that they would bring it to the cross, Lord, and that they would leave it there, knowing that you bore their guilt and you bore their shame. And that they would leave here today able to give thanks for the beautiful gift that you've given. Lord, how beautiful you are to create something like that for us. How generous, how good, how awesome you are to communicate, to give us something like that, to communicate to us what it's like to know Christ more fully. We're grateful, Lord. We're grateful. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen. So for those of you who are new, uh, just drop your Connect cards in the bucket in just a moment. The ushers are going to come up now. They're going to take the offering. And then also, if you'd like to volunteer with us uh, for this Halloween event, just put that in the bucket too. And then for those of you who are regulars here, if you uh, feel like City Church is a place that is a good place to uh, entrust your offerings, we would certainly appreciate that. While the band comes up, uh, I want to tell you uh, quickly about um, something that happened this past week. We, uh, many of you know, I've been talking about uh, a seminar coming up at the end of the month for married couples, and it's done by the world-renowned Gottman Institute. Well, before we did that for the couples, this last week, we offered uh, a seminar for all of the uh, counselors and therapists and psychologists in the city, and even beyond the city of Evansville. And we reduced the price, like really, really significantly. We paid for it so that they could come. And the guy who, who was the facilitator for the seminar, said, he said to them this. He said, I have never had a church that was generous, that was so generous to do something like this for people who don't even go to their church. And he said, I've never been a part of a church that has had that kind of vision to do something like this. Now, what we wanted to do, you see, we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to this city. And, you know, one of the things that affects people's lives more than anything else is their marriage, or if your kid's growing up, your parents' marriage. I mean, that, a good marriage can bring great renewal to a city. And not, you know, none of these people went to our church. Maybe a few of them went to our church, but, but most of them did not. And many of them didn't know Christ. But every single one of them thanked me profusely for the fact that we were willing to offer this for them and to pay for them to be able to come. Look, we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. That's one of the ways that it happens. It's by helping those who care for married couples. And I want you to know that that's where your resources go to, to things like that. To minister to the city of Evansville. Not just to the people in this room, although we do that, but to minister to people outside this room. And so whatever you give to City Church, just know that we're using it to accomplish vision. Thank you.